Welcome again to Wednesdays at Arcadia. This is our last Kingdom's Companions series study. I know. I know. We can roll right into Ezra next week, I guess. But I do think uh, Pastor Frank is going to start back up with 1 Corinthians starting next Wednesday night. And um, we get one more crack at this kingdom's material. My name is Tyler Thompson. I believe that I have met all of you. (laughs) It's a pleasure to be able to spend this time with you today, in particular on the book of 2 Chronicles. Uh, we talked last week about how First and Second Chronicles are actually linked, intended to be one, one book. We came along and divided that up later. Uh, but the two are intended to tell one story. And before we uh, get going in Second Chronicles, I want to let you know about uh, one or two things and then pick your brain as well. The, the, the first is that... Uh, be men's and women's Bible studies starting up again here shortly. Uh, this coming Sunday, uh, Daniel Bannister is going to give an update on what's happening with uh, the ministry of women. And uh, men's Bible studies are going to kick off on September 12th. That'll be 6.30 a.m. in this room. And we're going to cover the book of Acts, which is going to be a lot of, good, a lot of fun. It's going to be 12 weeks. And we also hope that you continue to hang out on Wednesday nights. What were a few of the things, given that this is our last study in the Kingdom's Companion series, let's do kind of rapid fire. What were a few of the things that stood out for you in this whole study, in this whole study of the Kingdom Companions series? First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. What are some things that jumped out at you? More kings did evil than good. It's a good observation. And certainly it would be a, untrue to say that they only did evil. There's a lot of good that came, but they, there's a lot more evil that was done. What else? There's sort of a repetition of pattern. Yeah. Uh, history kind of repeating itself. Um, God pursuing his people and us making a mess of it, that, that cycle that we're kind of in. Yep, there's a repetition there. Good. What else? I like when the fire came down from God to light up the sacrifice two times. That was pretty Yeah. Yeah. Fire from heaven, lighting up the sacrifices. Um, that's actually on my list for tonight for us to just briefly briefly discuss that God shows up and oftentimes his power and his presence comes in the form of fire. It's good. What else? He even got in like once outdoors and once indoors. <laughs> <laughs> He's indoor outdoor. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. He has skills. Love it. Yeah, that's right. His power is not limited to whether or not he's inside or outside. That's good. What else? God seems to be, um, God 
still what? He's still using me. Yeah, uh, and you connect that with God's confidence, yes. not necessarily in us, but his confidence in himself, that he is uh, omnipotent to the point where he can even use people like us and not have his omnipotence threatened. Very confident in who he is. Uh, that's actually a very good leadership skill from God, that he will uh, lead well regardless of who it is that he's leading. And uh, we know we need that help. In a way, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of frightening. Um, it can be peaceful, too, but it can be frightening because you know that nothing, um, nothing you do can thwart his plans. Yeah. And, um, and yet he can still, he can still use you. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There's nothing we can do to, to thwart his plans, and yet he'll still use us and uh, use our actions to further his purposes. Uh, whether, whether those actions are actually uh, good actions or not, God can cause, as was said in, the, in Genesis 50, that what you meant for evil, God means for good. And there's, that's another pattern that we've seen in, in the Kingdom's Companion series as well. That even things that were meant for evil, God can use for good. Well, I want to talk about a few themes in Second Chronicles tonight. The first is this theme of the dwelling place of God. That there seems to be a focus in Second Chronicles on God dwelling with his people. And this is seen in the, through the course of the temple. That God, the temple would be a place where God would dwell forever. And I want to just draw your attention to that theme throughout Scripture uh, before we even look at it in Second Chronicles. Because there's a real sense that this God dwelling with his people is a major theme of not only Second Chronicles, but of the whole biblical narrative. That he intends to be a God that dwells with his people. So if you look at uh, Genesis and the Garden of Eden, that once God had, had created Adam and Eve, there's imagery of God uh, walking in the garden, seeking out Adam and Eve, uh, intending to have an intimate relationship with them, and intending to dwell with them. And in some senses, that, that Garden of Eden is a, is, is a dwelling place for God initially, at least initially, that God intends to dwell there with Adam and Eve. And so you see him uh, walking through the garden pursuing that kind of a relationship together. Well, that didn't last very long. And you could say that ever since the fall, and ever since the fall occurred, God has been pursuing dwelling place ever since. That he has been pursuing renewed and restored dwelling with his people. And so some of the ways that this happens is, is this happens as God chooses Israel to be his people, God intends that he will uh, dwell with Israel in some form. Uh, we, how, what are some of the forms that we see God dwelling with his people? The yeah, the cloud, right? The cloud that traveled uh, with Israel, that there was God's presence there in the cloud. Very good. What else? What are the other things? The, the, the pillar of fire by night. 
We have uh, the Ark of the Covenant. We have the dwelling of God in his temple. There's a sense where uh, God has been pursuing dwelling place with his people ever since. And this continues in the New Testament as we are told that, uh, that we are the temple of, of God, that God's people, that the church, that Christians are the dwelling place of God in a way that uh, was previously, um, had previously had never happened because God's spirit indwells his church in a way that was different post-Pentecost. We have also the fact that God uh, scripturally dwells in not a temple made by human hands, but dwells in a, a spiritual temple. Uh, which is what's, what's mentioned in, in Acts chapter 17 as well. And so this theme of God dwelling with humanity is throughout the scripture. And I just want to actually read, some of you know that uh, my, my RC, my small group, has been going through Revelation together. Um, I think it's Dan's favorite book. <laughs> and so... I wanted to make sure that I got some of that in there tonight. Um, but listen to this. Listen to this in Revelation chapter 21. So this is, this is the second to last chapter in the Bible. And it says this. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So I love this this language here, that God would be dwelling with man for all eternity. And that there would be this dwelling place that we would enjoy when the new heaven and the new earth are, are created. And so now as we look at 2 Chronicles, we can see that This is what we're headed to. We're headed to God dwelling with humanity for all eternity. There was a start in the garden where that was uh, was begun. But we've made a mess of it in the middle. And so there are foreshadowing, there are foreshadows of that future reality where we'll dwell with God, God will dwell with us for all eternity. But they're they're only foreshadows. They're They're not... uh, they're not the, the full essence of what God intends for dwelling with his people. So turn, if you would, Second Chronicles uh, verse, uh, chapter 6. All right, Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 1. Then Solomon said... The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. But I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel. 
while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he has promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since that day that I brought out my people from the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, and I chose no man as prince over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. And now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, it is not you who shall build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he has made, for I have risen in the place of David my father, and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have set the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the prophet of Israel." And so the theme here around the temple is that it would be the dwelling place of God, where God would dwell with his people. And that this would be something that would be a foreshadowing of what would ultimately take place at the end of time. That God would have a dwelling place with his people for all eternity. Just after this, Solomon says a prayer of dedication for the temple and for the people. And then there's fire from heaven. This is part of what, what Rich was, was referring to. And there's fire from heaven that one of the ways that God shows up here is that fire comes down. So let's read that real quick in, in 2 Chronicles 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because... The glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped God and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So I love this follow-up to, to chapter 6 where the indication is that God's fire comes down and his glory is so, so uh, prevalent, his glory is so extreme, that they couldn't even be in the temple. That's an amazing thing to think about. And it's a far cry from what we tend to think about when we think about God and his presence in our, in our temple, or our church building, or our bodies. That if we considered God's glory to be like we see in 2 Chronicles 7, it might change the way that we live with God as our, in our dwelling places. And maybe that's my own body. Maybe that's our collective body. Maybe that's our gathering space. Maybe that's the, the world itself. That if we were able to see a glimpse of God's glory, that that would change how we approached and behaved around what we thought was God's dwelling place. Does that make sense? And so we, we oftentimes lose sight of this, though. We think that God dwells in the places made by the human hands. 
and we lose sight of the fact that God's dwelling place, he's making that in us. And the intention is that his glory would be revealed in us as well. So we fall short in this way. But there's a, there's a, there's a instruction from, for, from the Lord in this chapter that I think we want to not miss because it actually shows what's going to be the ramifications of the rest of this book of Second Chronicles and really much of the rest of the Old Testament. So in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 11, it says this, If thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house, all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for, my house as a, for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. By the way, none of those things sound good. When, when I do these things, God says, when I make it so that it doesn't rain, when I make it that there is locust devouring the land, or when I send pestilence. Like, what are you up to, God? Like, none of this sounds good. And if you're Solomon and it's the middle of the night and you've just built this house for the Lord, aren't you thinking, like, isn't it time for blessing? Like... But, but now this is what God is saying. Verse, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne, as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But, verse 19, But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes... And my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you and this house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and said, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. So, there seems to be a very clear choice among the people that they are to either seek God, seek his face, turn to him, pray to him, worship him, follow him, obey his, his decrees and commands, or they are to turn to other gods, not seek his face, and there's consequences to these choices. What we see in the rest of the book of Second Chronicles and much of, the next, uh, much of the rest of the Old Testament is that they have chosen poorly. <laughs> 
And there's a real sense where this pattern that we've already seen established is going to continue to be a problem. And so Solomon, when he, when he passes away, the kingdom gets divided. And when the kingdom is divided, initially at least, there is a part of Israel that is making a wise choice, following the Lord, obeying and worshiping him. And there's a part of uh, Israel that is not, that is now turned to false gods and not obeying God's commands. And we see very quickly that these consequences are, are very real, that, that God does intend to follow through with what he's said here, that if, we, if, that if we remain in him, if we follow him, if we worship him, if we obey him, there's life. Uh, if we don't, there's not. And I think there's some similar language from Jesus when he says, if you remain in me, you'll have life. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, remain in me you're going to live and thrive. If you don't remain in me, you're, it's not a necessarily a vindictive thing. It's just that you're no longer in, in the vine. You're no longer connected to the source of life. There's so many places in the scripture that God is just so clear about this, and yet we continue to reiterate the pattern over and over again. Some of the Old Testament prophets will say things similar to this. Seek God and live. <laughs> seems, pretty, seems pretty similar, uh, pretty simple. simple. Simple equation from the prophets of God. Seek God and live. I set before you life and death. Choose life. And yet we somehow don't understand the instructions. This continues to be a problem for Israel, and it continues to be a problem for us as well. Uh, throughout the book of the, re- the rest of the book of Second Chronicles, we have divided kingdom, and that's based on this if-then clause that we we have just read. Uh, towards the end of Second Chronicles, a man named Cyrus shows up, and Cyrus is huge in the rest of the Old Testament, uh, leading into Ezra, uh, the very last verses of 2 Chronicles 36 are identical to the first verses of Ezra chapter 1. Which is pretty cool. I actually didn't know that before, before studying for this, this Bible study. That 2 Chronicles leads right into the story of Ezra, uh, the book of Ezra, with identical verses um, at the end and beginning of those books. But Cyrus comes along and God uses Cyrus despite the fact that he is not Jewish. And he is actually one of the only, uh, he is the only non-Jewish person in the Bible who gets referred to in Messianic language. Part of what I think God's up to in this is that in the middle of this divided kingdom where God's people have continued to disobey, rebel, walk away from God, there is a, an eye to the future where God selects this non-Jewish person to be a kind of foreshadowing of the Messiah that would come. So Cyrus ends up being a, a huge uh, person in the book of Ezra and Daniel and Isaiah. Just listen to what um, Isaiah says about Cyrus. Isaiah 45, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. 
And earlier in the chapter, in Isaiah 45, it says this. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and I will level the mountains. I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and I bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. This is fascinating that God would choose a non-Jewish person to be a type of Messiah and foreshadowing God's salvation for his people. And it turns out that Cyrus ends up being someone who does much good for the people of Israel. He, he, he has returned much of what was lost to them in their kingdom, much of the goods that had been stolen or taken away. And he ends up being a person that God used to foreshadow the ultimate salvation of God as people. Now, we're running out of time, so let me just say this. When we get to the opening chapters of the New Testament, and it seems like all hope is lost for the people of Israel, for God's chosen people, we have the beautiful language about the incarnation of Jesus. And this language that gets used, particularly by in the Gospel of John, but also, also with the Synoptic Gospels. We have this language of Jesus' incarnation, that he came and he made his dwelling place among us. And that we have beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son. So John chapter 1, John uses this language saying, this Jesus who has come is one who has dwelt among us. And he's referencing here this dwelling place, this idea that every, every, uh, every fan of the Old Testament would understand what he's saying. It is that this person of God, this God has come to be dwelling among the people in the person of Jesus Christ. That, that, that incarnational living from Christ is the idea that he moved into our neighborhood and he took up residency there with us. And he did so in such a way that would make salvation so that the future dwelling place of God could be a reality for all eternity. How cool the way that the Bible works together in all of these things. That God's intention for a dwelling place with his people is realized in the dwelling place made by Jesus Christ. And we praise the Lord for that.